is Stacy Harbaugh and Seeger Gray with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin National Guard could see changes in how it responds to incidents of sexual misconduct. Channel 3000 reports that the proposed changes come at the recommendation of a study committee that's been working for the past year after the Guard mishandled sexual misconduct reports. In 2019, the head of the Wisconsin National Guard resigned after an investigation found he had repeatedly mishandled complaints of sexual assault. One of the recommendations is an annual report that would be sent to lawmakers and the governor outlining the Guard's policies to prevent sexual assault and harassment. Those recommendations, which have bipartisan support, will be introduced to the legislature next month. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers has granted another 171 pardons. Since taking office, Evers has pardoned 774 people, the most of any Wisconsin governor. Individuals convicted of a felony may apply for a pardon if they finished their sentence at least five years ago. A pardon restores a person formerly convicted of a felony certain rights, like serving on a jury and holding certain licenses. Many of Evers' pardons are for felony possession of marijuana committed by people when they were in their early 20s. Governor Evers also announced today a new recovery housing program for unhoused people diagnosed with an opioid use disorder. The Capital Times reports the program provides vouchers to stay in a recovery house for up to 24 months. The recovery houses will be centered on peer support and a connection to services that promote long-term recovery from opioid addiction. The program is being funded through money the state received in a lawsuit against the consulting group McKinsey & Company after it was found that they help turbocharge opioid drug sales. Four UW universities misspent about $240,000 in federal COVID relief money, according to a recent report issued by legislative analysts. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the Nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau believes UW-La Crosse is responsible for three-quarters of the misspent dollars. Much of the dollars went to hiring a consultant for recruitment, something the Bureau says isn't allowed under relief requirements. System administrators dispute some of the claims. The misspending represents 0.04% of the over $500 million in federal aid to the UW school system. UW-Platteville and UW-Superior also have different inappropriate expenses. The Audit Bureau recommends administrators offer written guidance to universities on allowable expense uses. UW Health plans to build an outpatient surgery center wing on its Eastside Hospital. The hospital board approved the initial plans last week. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, Dr. Thomas Zedeblik resigned from his orthopedic department position in June after proposing such a facility. Dean of the UW School of Medicine, Dr. Robert Golden, rejected Zedeblik's plan, saying it would deprive UW Health of potential revenue. Orthopedics is a top revenue generator for most health systems. Zedeblik told the Wisconsin State Journal in in September that there weren't enough operating rooms for the number of patients, and his plan was, quote, the only immediately viable solution. Additional surgery centers are planned for Sun Prairie and possibly Janesville and Baraboo.
The city of Madison will hold a meeting next Thursday, January 5th, to discuss the construction of a new Dane County jail. The meeting will hear community feedback on a proposal to add a six-story south tower at 115 West Doty Street. The building would consolidate the Public Safety Building Jail, the City Council Building Jail, and the Ferris Huber Center. According to the city's Common Council website, it would provide space for housing, visitation, recreation, and medical health for jail residents. The virtual meeting is planned to start at 6.30. Login information is available after registering at cityofmadison.com. A Dane County judge has dismissed a defamation lawsuit against a local TV station for misidentifying the police officer who shot an unarmed man during an arrest. Journalists at Channel 27 were named in a defamation lawsuit this summer for identifying the wrong Mark Wagner. Reporter reporter Tony Galley confused the state agent who wounded Quadrant Wilson, Mark P. Wagner, with retired Milwaukee officer Mark D. Wagner. Now that man filed the lawsuit claiming the station aired the incorrect report while knowing it was false, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. But Dane County Judge Frank Remington ruled that the news story, while incorrect, was not defamatory. The report was clearly about the agent who shot Wilson, not the retired officer, Remington wrote. Retired officer Mark D. Wagner was cleared of wrongdoing after fatally shooting a man in 2002. Agent Mark P. Wagner was charged in September with second-degree reckless endangerment in the shooting of Wilson. Now that the weather has warmed up, water pipes that froze during the recent cold spell have started to leak, reports the Madison Fire Department. The department says it has responded to at least 30 incidents where pipes have leaked in homes, schools, and businesses. Leaks can produce significant damage to buildings and property. Homeowners insurance can cover the cost of repairs, but renters without insurance can suffer unexpected expenses to replace damaged belongings, the department warns. And now, on to today's top stories. There's only two days and five and a half hours until the start of 2023. Now, if you're taking stock of the year that's almost passed, you are not alone. Local government is also taking stock of environmental successes and looking to the year ahead. WORT reporter Erin Ashley has the story. The turning of a new year is a time for reflection. We look back on what we've accomplished and set goals for the year ahead. The same holds true for Dane County, which released a report earlier today on the amount of muck that got sucked out of the waterways this year. That's all part of a years-long initiative to prevent flooding. I joined the county executive's office in looking back on their efforts in 2022. Since the torrential flooding of 2018, the Suck the Muck initiative has worked to clear sediment buildup from Dane County's many waterways and create more basins for excess water to flow into. The removal and relocation of phosphorus runoff is also a key part of the plan to improve overall lake quality, cutting down on toxic algae blooms in the summer. According to the county executive's office, just one pound of phosphorus can create up to 500 pounds of algae growth. This year, The Suck the Muck initiative tackled the Six Mile Creek watershed area, which runs through Wanakee, northwest of Madison. 
Starting in early May, dewatering basins began to pimple the landscape around the Mary Lake area of Six Mile Creek. As the nation celebrated its 246th birthday in July, the county office also celebrated the completion of the dewatering basins, heralding the start of the dredging process. As the summer leaves turned brown, so did the basins as they filled with muck and grime dredged from the belly of the Six Mile Creek. When the lakes froze, so did the dredging efforts, which will resume again in the spring when the ice melts. Now that the dredging efforts are on seasonal hiatus due to winter weather, the county has year-end data for how much muck was sucked in 2022. Those numbers? 25,000 pounds of muck removed in 2022, and 60,000 pounds of phosphorus just from Six Mile Creek, confirming earlier sampling showing the creek had suffered a concentration of buildup at the bottom of the creek. Combined, that's a little more than a third of the total muck and phosphorus that's been dredged up over the past few years. The county also removed 37 million gallons of sludge from waterways between Lake Wabisa and Lower Mud Lake, just south of McFarland, over the course of this past year to keep potential flooding bottlenecks open. Removing phosphorus from lakes and riverbeds keeps algae in check. Bluer waters and cleaner shores could slowly be on the horizon as more and more phosphorus and sludge are removed. And the removal of so many sediment deposits means that water will flow better between bodies of water, reducing the risk of floods. As we welcome the new year, the county office will start new sediment removal projects along the Door Creek wetlands in 2023. Dredging will begin again in spring as soon as weather permits. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley, and Happy New Year. This weekend, we'll see New Year's Eve parties across the world as people ring in the new year. Here in Wisconsin, a lot of those parties will involve alcohol. Wisconsin's reputation as a drinking state comes with some major consequences, as a new report from the Wisconsin State Journal shows that drunk driving and accidents that arise from drunk driving are on the rise. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhaupt spoke with Barry Adams, the author of that report, about the startling numbers when it comes to drunk driving. Let's just start off with the numbers. How many crashes were there in 2021 that involved impaired drivers, and how does that compare to other years? Our, uh, our editor, Kelly Lecker, uh, grew up in Wisconsin. Uh, moved away for 25 or some years. She, she came, and she came back from Ohio, and she really kind of noticed just how ingrained alcohol is uh, in our society here. And we started talking about drunken driving, and I said, well, you know, we've been about drunken driving um, a lot over the last, you know, 20 years since I've been with the paper. And, uh, in fact, you know, so we wanted to do something a little different um, because it, it's almost as if, uh, this topic, it's it's so there that we kind of forget about it, or, you know, what I'm saying. So we, wa- we wanted to kind of look forward a little bit and, and see what, what people are doing and all that. But when we started looking at uh, the data, I, I guess we were thinking, well, you know, has, has drunken driving gotten better in the last 20 years? Has it gotten worse? Where, you know, where are we at with things? And Initially, when we looked at the data, it was it was kind of encouraging. You know, you go back to 2002, 
and we had like 9,000 alcohol-related crashes. And that's a lot compared to this year, where uh, in 2022, we're going to be at around 7,000 or so. But what happened, though, in starting in around 2013, 2014, those numbers started to go up. And that's where the area of concern is. Now, fatality-wise, the, 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 the fatal numbers have been fairly constant. I mean, they did go down a little bit in the mid, uh, you know, 2013, 2014. And now they've started to tick back up a little bit. And those numbers can always vary depending on crashes and, and everything. But it's really the, the, the alcohol-related crashes, impaired driving crashes, and, uh, and the injuries uh, that, that really kind of drew our attention uh, to, this, uh, to this story. And now in your story, you quote a traffic research project manager at UW-Madison who said, quote, we maybe can't solve the problem of that person getting into the car and being impaired, but we can mitigate the consequences, end quote. What are what are some ways that both communities and, as you mentioned in your story, car manufacturers uh, try and mitigate the damage caused by drunk driving? You know, there's there's been so many things uh, that are being done to to help mitigate not just uh, impaired driving, but distracted drivers, you know, with these cars that it can, in essence, drive themselves almost. Uh, I'm not even just talking about Teslas. I'm talking about newer cars that have crash re- reduction systems where if you're, if you're starting to go over the line, the, the center line or the, or the, the road, uh, the shoulder, it'll correct you. If, or if you're coming up on a vehicle too fast and you get too close to one, it'll slow you down. Um, all those things can really help uh, reduce crashes, whether you're impaired, distracted, tired, whatever. And so that that is going to help. But again, you know, is that helping to, is it masking the drunken, the drunken driving issue, the, the impaired driving issue? And I should also say, too, that when we talk about these numbers, we talk about operating while intoxicated. Well, that covers not only alcohol, but also drugs. Um, and that's one thing that, that law enforcement is getting better at identifying and um, being able to detect uh, with new tests and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, in years past, they may not have, you may not have registered on a breathalyzer test um, if, if you were uh, using illegal drugs or something. But now they've got um, officers better trained, these, drug, uh, detect, these, drug, these officers who are trained in uh, detecting uh, drugs. They've got, you know... Uh, blood pressure cuffs and they take your temperature and all these things that all help to determine whether or not, uh, you know, you're you're under the influence of something other than alcohol. So your story also mentions things like uh, rumble strips and roundabouts and how how do those sort of cut back on the damage that is caused by drunk driving? Yeah, so here in Wisconsin, we we have, uh, we're flush with roundabouts and a lot of people don't like them, uh, but what traffic traffic safety experts will tell you is they slow traffic down, whether you like them or not. And maybe they are, there are more crashes at roundabouts because people don't use them correctly. But what they do is cut down on fatalities um, and probably serious injuries as well um, because you're forced to slow down. You may, get, you may sideswipe somebody, whatever, but it eliminates those four-way stops um, where people can blow through stop lights or stop signs. And so that's helping to reduce traffic deaths as well. Rumble strips, you know, on the center of roadways, on the side of roadways. Um, again, if you're even if you're impaired, uh, it might, you know, uh, draw your attention to it. Uh, another one that Andrea Bill 
at the uh, traffic lab said is that they're putting reflectors on the sign posts that are holding up stop signs and other warning signs on highways. And so if you're impaired, you may be looking not up, you may be looking down. It's just a way to, uh, to better attract the attention uh, of a warning sign. So, uh, you know, they're doing all they can to try and mitigate the mistakes that people make on the road is what they're trying to do. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, it, the, the alcohol use is, is, a, is a big problem in this state as the numbers bear out. And I want to get into that alcohol use in a moment here, but uh, another one of your stories that you put out this week focused on Wisconsin OWI courts. What What is an OWI treatment court, and what do they do to help people who have been convicted of drunk driving? Yeah, so the, I think there's like 25 or so courts in, in the state of Wisconsin uh, each count, that counties have, um, and they're really a jail diversion or a prison diversion program that allow people who've been convicted, typically of three or more uh, offenses. Um, it allows them to get into a program, uh, get some treatment, uh, meet with a judge on a weekly basis, and uh, hopefully uh, work towards sobriety. Um, and these programs can take anywhere from uh, you know a year to, to three years to complete, depending on how well you do. Um, one of the big aspects of this is the amount of testing uh, that is done. You know, we, we followed uh, one person in Dane County Court, and, you know, he had to, to drive his vehicle. He needed an uh, ignition interlock device, uh, which he has to blow into to start it. But then as you're driving, you also have to blow into it like every, I think it was 10 or 15 minutes, uh, uh, something to that effect, uh, just to keep the car going. And then there was, uh, there was random uh, urinalysis uh, tests that he would have to be called in to take. And he also had a scram device, which is this like brick-sized device that um, he would have to blow in multiple times a day, regardless of where he was, whether he's just sitting at home, at work, wherever. Uh, and that would tell uh, officials whether or not uh, he had been drinking. And what's being done at the state level to address drunk driving? Yeah, you know that's a tough one, and 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 that's you know Alex Sure, our state uh, state one of our state house reporters wrote about this. You know, the, the Tavern League in this state is incredibly powerful. And, uh, you know, you start talking about increasing the alcohol tax or, you know, simple things that are, are can be really difficult to get through a, a legislature. And uh, because, you know, the Tavern League is so powerful in this state and alcohol is part of the culture in Wisconsin. And uh, unfortunately, that culture comes with deadly consequences. And now you've mentioned uh, Wisconsin's alcohol and drinking culture a couple of times now. Tell me a little bit more about that and what effect it has on on drunk driving in Wisconsin. Obviously, Wisconsin is known to be a drinking state sort of across the country, but your story sort of goes into it a little bit more than that, correct? Well, I mean, I mean think about it. You know, what, when's the last event you went to that didn't have alcohol in it? You know, um, there's very few. Um, even, you know, church picnics, they've got beer tents, um, you know, the zoo lights at the Dane County at Valley Zoo here in Madison. Uh, you could buy drinks at booths at zoo lights. I mean, you're there for an hour. Why do you need alcohol? Um, you know, public parks uh, are having beer gardens. We got, you know, how many bars and restaurants in Madison that sell alcohol, but now we've got to have them in parks. You know, it's just ingrained in this culture, whether it's uh, Badger 
football games or a Packer game or Brewer game, I mean, beer and alcohol are a major part of those uh, experiences, festivals. Think about all the festivals out there um, that are just, uh, they revolve around alcohol. Well, Barry, do you have just any final thoughts on uh, anything that you found that you think is important to share? Well, you know, one of the concerns that officials have um, is the fact, you know, COVID, we saw a, a rise in crashes and in fatalities. And and what they're really concerned about is, is hoping that number can reverse and start going back down. Um, we'll find out what happens here in 2023. But right now, um, for 2022, it's it's continuing to go up. I've been talking with Barry Adams, reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about his new series of stories on drunk driving here in Wisconsin. Now, Barry has published three stories on this this week, and so you can go and read all of them for yourself over at Madison.com. Barry, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Yeah, you bet, Nate. Thanks. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray, here with my co-host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, we bring you an excerpt from the Out of the Box podcast, which is focused on supporting current and formerly incarcerated people and their families. This week, contributor D. Starr sits down with Stephen Spiro and James Morgan to talk about the importance of meditation in prison. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D. Starr, here with Stephen Spiro and James Morgan. For the people that don't know you, Stephen, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Where I'm from? Well, you know, I grew up as a military kid, so, I, you know, I, I'm from everywhere. You know, you know how that is. But I've been in Madison a long time, Madison area. The Wisconsin Prison Mindfulness Initiative is a group of volunteers who are all meditators, some of us very long-time meditators who've done a lot of training in it. We formed eight, nine years ago, something like that. And we've been going into various prisons in the state to form groups and create connections around the skills of meditation and mindfulness. There's about 40 volunteers right now and we're in about 13 different institutions. Typically, we go in once every two weeks and do our classes, do our groups. Well, wow, that's very important work. But I have to ask, how has the pandemic affected your group? Well, right now, not at all. I mean, during the pandemic, we kept all the groups going on Zoom. Once the uh, institutions got their technological act together, we were able to, to meet in person uh, with assembled groups, still do our groups. Prior to that, we actually created DVDs and sent them in to be played on the institution channel. And so people people couldn't participate, but they could watch them. And those were successful that they actually, they were sent to the prisons in the state of Indiana and also state of, of Illinois because what we were teaching was, was universal. It wasn't specific to any particular group. But later on, once we got the Zoom together, we were able to not only have our groups, but we were able to meet one-on-one with, with people. So pretty, we did pretty well, I think, even in the pandemic. So why is this work so important? It always has been. Human beings have been meditating everywhere in the world for really for thousands of years. And the reason that we do it is because it works, because it's, it's practical. It helps us. There's a lot of discussion about where it originated and nobody knows. 
But one little story about that um, is that if, if you were uh, many, many years ago, if you were in a tribe and you had to provide food for your family and for the tribe, you had to hunt successfully. And so you would sit in a tree or behind a bush with your, with your bow and arrow waiting for that deer or whatever it was you were hunting. And you may have to wait a long time sometimes. So you had to be very relaxed. If you shifted around and made noise, no lunch, right? You had to be very alert, right? You couldn't go to sleep. So you had to have these two qualities at the same time, being relaxed and being alert. That's meditation. We're encouraging people, whether they're in prison or out. We teach outside of prison, too. I mean, I teach in all kinds of different places. In order to find some kind of peace within your own self, without drugs, without TV, without distractions, to find some kind of peace, you have to be able to get still. And when you're in an environment like a prison, peace is a rare commodity. You're probably going to have a hard time finding it outside of yourself. But you can find it in yourself. Everybody has that capacity. There are only three requirements. You have to have a body. Check that one off. You have to have a mind. Check that one off. And you have to have breath. You have to be breathing. That's all. Those are the only requirements. That and an interest and a curiosity to try this out. For many of these guys, even the very idea of sitting still without moving, with your eyes closed or looking down for 10 minutes, impossible. It it can't be done. And what they find is not only can it be done, but it can be very pleasurable. Once you cross that threshold of resistance to doing this, you discover that place of peace that's within you. You don't create it, you discover it because it's always there. And once you find, it's like being in a desert and finding an oasis, finding a well where there's fresh water. Once you find it, you can always go to it. It's always there. It's always been there. And from there, everything else unfolds because they suddenly, people realize that I'm not at the mercy of my environment. I'm affected by it. I'm not at the mercy of my past. I'm affected by it. But I can find this place of peace within myself and allow my wisdom mind to come through. So people call it different things. They call it the soul. They call it your conscience. They call it your second mind. They call it your big self. There's all these different names for it. We call it mindfulness, your mindfulness, right? So this sounds very abstract, but let me just give you an example. So if I say to you, just for a moment, just close your eyes for a moment and think of an apple right, in your mind. So you can do that, right? You can, you can see this apple perfectly, right? And you could even maybe f- imagine feeling it or smelling it, t- tasting it. You can make this apple a real thing in your mind. Right? So the question is, are you the apple? And from the point of view of meditation and mindfulness, the answer is no. You are the one who created the apple, right? And you're the one that perceives the presence of the apple. So you're bigger than the apple, 
You're bigger than your thoughts. You're more than just your thoughts. And this is the doorway to wisdom because people think that we're just our thoughts. Well, where did they come from? It came from our parents, from our society, from our friends, all these information telling me who I am. And we believe it. It's not true. It's just thoughts. It's just thoughts, right? So the one who perceives the thoughts, the one who's aware of thinking, that's the deep self. That's the mindfulness. And when people discover that in their own self, they never have to go back. Because suddenly, they're the one who can say, well, I'm making a T with my hands, like time out. Say, time out, wait a minute. I don't have to believe all these thoughts. They're just thoughts. They're just like clouds in the sky with a wind. They're going to vanish. They're going to reappear. I'm the one who's present here, me. I'm in charge. So we're trying to empower people with their own wisdom, and with their own liberation. We're not giving people something. We're empowering them. And then it's just like you said, D, the light can go on. Wait a minute. Hold it. I don't have to think the same way. I don't have to behave the same way as I always have. I can do something different, right? <laughs> so that's mindfulness. That's, that's the power of mindfulness, that, that, that we're, we're trying to connect people to their own mindfulness. We've been listening to D Star, host of the Oddity Box podcast, talking with Stephen Spiro and James Morgan. You can find the full interview on the Oddity Box podcast found wherever you subscribe. Last week brought with it a bitter cold snap, which means that it is now officially ice fishing season. On this week's Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhaupt and Pat Hasberg break out their ice augers to find the best ice fishing spots around Dane County. All right, it's Thursday, which means that I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been a, uh, we had a, a bit of a cold stretch there for a little while. So, uh, I, I mean, the ice has been ready to go for a, a little bit here. So how's the ice fishing been lately? The ice fishing's been great. All the um, shallow bays around town, uh, anywhere there's shallow water is generally uh, safe for foot travel, certainly, but folks have already been getting ATVs out, and then also um, all the main lakes are froze over now, but uh, Mendota and Monona out in the middle of the lakes, I'd, I'd steer clear of that ice for just a little bit longer here. It's uh, a little thin out, out in the, over the deep water, but uh, lots of great ice around town. Now, like I said, we had a bit of a, a cold snap for a while there, but it, it, you know, going outside today, it is pretty warm out right now. So, so you know, sort of looking at the ice, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but is, is the ice going to uh, hold up for this weekend in this little bit of a warm stretch that we have here? I think it will. You know, this time of year, the sun is real low in the sky. And, um, you know, the, uh, outside of, um, you know, a downpour of rain, uh, I think... 
the ice is going to fare just fine through this little warm stretch that we're there uh, calling for here. All right, then let's get right into it and look at uh, Lake Mendota. Where are p- people uh, ice fishing there and uh, what's happening? Well, up here on the north side, uh, Cherokee uh, Marsh is connected to Lake Mendota. It's, it's under all the same regulations. And, you know, folks have been fishing up there since uh, before Thanksgiving, but uh, now there's plenty of ice, uh, eight to nine inches out there. And folks are getting good gill action and some good tip-ups out in that area. Um, out on Warner Bay here, the Warner Bay has been iced over for more than a week. I heard there's about six inches down there. Some folks are getting some good pike. Uh, University Bay has got some panfish action going on. And uh, there's a few walleyes in some of the shallower areas I've been hearing about uh, around town, or around Mendota. All right, and let's move over to uh, Monona. Has, uh, what's the uh, situation been like over there? Well, Monona Bay and the Triangles area down there near Brittingham Park is a very popular spot for ice anglers this time of year, and uh, that stands true right now. There's a lot of folks down there doing well on bluegills. It's a good uh, numbers game down there. Size, folks have been having to sort through a lot of those fish, but there is uh, some great uh, tip-up action down there for pike and bass, and I've even been hearing about some nice walleyes coming out of that area, too. Other areas... um, Around the lake up near Olbrick has some uh, decent ice out from there. I've been hearing about some fish. And on the south end of the lake, too, uh, Turbo Bay and uh, Wickawack Bay, it's called now. It used to be Swa Bay, is um, also producing some gills and um, and uh, some nice pike and walleyes in there, too, actually. And the when the people are picking up the bluegill and stuff, you know, when I th- when I think ice fishing, that's you you end up bringing in a lot of a lot of bluegill. What are what are people using to uh, pick those up? Are they using any sort of anything in particular to get the bluegill? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people use uh, plastic little plastics, but um, it's hard to beat a, a small spike or a waxworm on a on a tiny jig is uh, getting the job done for a lot of folks. And uh, you know, it's classic. Uh, classic bait for those fish and almost always works all right well then let's move over to uh, lake wingra uh you know how how has that lake been looking well you know i actually was able to get out on lake wingra just yesterday and we had a tough time of it I, you know we we've got a spot there we had a bunch of little kids with us usually it's a great spot to keep kids busy with a bunch of tiny gills and you know some crappie and little perch in there and and get, chase some pike on tip-ups but boy it was slow for us yesterday and I, i'm not sure if it was you know, we were too shallow or what the deal was, but uh, we didn't have much luck down there personally, but uh, I know that there are a lot of fish in there, and I have been hearing about some folks doing okay, but for me personally, yesterday was, was pretty rough, actually. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's that's been one, that's always been my go-to as well, so that's that's interesting right. to hear. I'll see, see, keep an eye on that lake throughout the winter here then. Well, then moving on over to Lake Wabisa, what's happening there? Uh, lake Wabisa's been uh, pretty good for some gills down on the south end. I've been hearing about some walleyes in the Babcock Park area. Um, Lake Farm on the north end has been pretty quiet from what I hear. Folks are struggling to find weeds up there. But also um, Mud Lake, uh, which is just north of Lake Wabisa, has been producing some good panfish out there too. Now the the over the summer and in the fall there, Kaganza, it was pretty quiet all year it feels like. So what's what's sort of been happening over on Kaganza? Have you heard any action there? Well, it's, you know, Kiganza remains a mystery uh, for a lot of folks. I have heard of a, a couple folks doing uh, decent on gills in some shallow water. If you can find weeds, you're likely to find some gills and maybe some crappies in there. Uh, the, the main thing on Kiganza this time of year is people chase perch out in the main lake basin. 
but I haven't heard about uh, a lot of success coming out of there. Just it, it's really only been froze over out in the deep water there for about a week. But I have heard they have about eight inches of ice all the way across the lake up there, so plenty safe for foot travel. And folks are driving ATVs out there too. But I I just haven't heard about any any anybody getting into any solid perch action. Well, I think that about wraps up the uh, area lakes here. And now I have to ask, are there people uh, hitting any rivers or things like that? Any sort of open water on the rivers anywhere? Not really. With that cold snap, you know, you get um, when it, when it's bitter cold, even though there's current in rivers, uh, that bitter cold will cause a lot of shelf ice on the, along the shoreline. So it's been, um, it, it's tough to launch a boat uh, at a lot of the launches. They get, they get capped over with ice. So I haven't heard haven't heard much out of rivers. I know they were doing all right above the Wisconsin Dells uh, for a while, but again, that's that's all got at least a skim of ice over it now. But uh, maybe with this warm up, that might free up some water up there. But I, I haven't personally heard heard of much going on. Makes it pretty difficult to shore fish when you know there's a little bit of ice on the uh, rivers there. Well, Pat, sort of coming up against the clock here. Uh, any final fishing advice for the people out there? Well, no, just uh, enjoy enjoy this little warm spell and, and, and be safe out there. There's lots of lots of good fishing to be had, and, and uh, like I said, I think the ice is going to hold up through this warm spell. So, And be sure to always check the ice before you go out on it there. Well, Pat, thank you so much for talking to me this week. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want. Uh, just call one simple number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much again, and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. Is your New Year's resolution to finally get rid of all the junk lying around your house? Well, don't worry, because professional organizer Nicole Gruder is here to help. On this week's Archival edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Jennifer Fields speaks with Gruder about how hard it is to part with things you want but no longer need. So I moved away for a while, and in the meantime, I stored some things in my basement, and I didn't know how long I was going to be gone, and so I thought, oh, I'll just shove this down here. And so um, guess what I haven't gotten to in two years? That corner in my basement that has just a bunch of random, you know, papers and a filing cabinet and CDs I don't listen to and cookbooks I don't use, and so it's, yes, I understand the irony of the situation very well, <laughs> but that gives me a lot of empathy for my clients. It's not like we're not busy. It's not like we don't have a lot of things to consider and think about in life. And I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want that pressure knowing that there's, you know, an extra box in my house. I'm feeling like the pressure from, I've never seen the show, but Maria Kondo. Right. I think it's really interesting that you're bringing up that pressure. This is the first time I've heard of that phenomenon because most people are, you know, talking about that. Well, they either hate the show or they love the show or they're inspired by the show or they couldn't care less. But I have yet to hear somebody feel pressured by it, which is really interesting because it is sort of at the top of people's minds um, about how we consume things, their, their own space, minimalism, and sometimes people don't want that. Um, so I just feel like if it brings you, like she says, if it brings you joy, you know, stick with it, have it in your home. I have lots of clothes that bring me lots of joy. And so I keep a lot of my clothes and I don't feel bad about it. Um, it's getting a little ridiculous now with not being able to close the closet door very easily but <laughs> so you know i'm real i don't have just like four pairs of this and two pairs of that um so that's my indulgence right some people it's books some people it's albums some people whatever it's car parts you name it i don't want to make a judgment on things of how much people have and how much they don't have i just want there to be some sort of okayness with your stuff 
Oh, I, and I will provide that okayness for you. <laughs> I will grant you the okayness. Yeah, so sometimes people have uh, I, this idea that I'm going to come in and just throw everything away, and that could not be you know, farther from the truth. I want to have what's in your home serve you, suit you, inspire you, and a lot of times, I would say most people have a lot in their homes that do not check those boxes. I'm done with the projects that I used to really, the, the pastimes that I used to really enjoy. Quite frankly, I am not gonna ice skate. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. I have no desire to fall on that ice when it's cold. I am not gonna do that anymore. And recognizing that that's what's so important because we have all these what ifs and these some days and they don't happen. It's so seldom because, you know, our, we as humans, we move forward. We're always moving forward. And we have this idea that we're going to get to these things someday. And it's so rare that it comes to that. And we're inspired by new things all the time. So if one day it's ice skating and the next day it's oil painting, then you're going to gather new things in your home, new projects, new hobbies, whatever it might be, a new focus. And that's all. When I work with people who are moving, that's really a great juncture to get rid of those items um, because you don't want to drag all that old stuff into a new space. It's sort of like tired energy. You you think you're going to do it. And then, and then sometimes the guilt happens there where they think, oh, shoot, I spent all this money on, you know, whatever it is, and I'm not doing it. I'm not pursuing it. And, oh, well, I better keep it because I spent all this money on it. Or it's a part of me deep inside that really wants to do it, but I'm not making the time to do it. And so there's these other levels of guilt that start coming into our lives. We don't need that. Nobody needs that. So and that, And that idea, too, like... For me to get rid of those skates was like, okay, who can I give them to? Who's going to use it? And then I realized, you know what, that's not my problem. You know, you want to really think through how much time you want to spend on these things because people are adamant about, they say, oh, I can sell this for X amount of money. And I, or, let me tell you, first of all, you're never going to get what you paid for it. Secondly, if you want to put the time into selling something, by all means, I, I personally don't have a lot of luck on eBay and such, but other people have fantastic luck. And if you want to put in the time and the effort for $10, you know, maybe it's worth $100. Great. Um, personally, I find it more rewarding to just get, get it out of the house and not have to ever think about it again instead of continually coming back to it having to answer emails, having to answer phone calls, having to answer the door, you know, bar bartering over the the amount that it it's worth and just I don't know, it, it's a very time-consuming process for some. My main push is to just get it out of the house. Or if you truly know that there might be a group of people that could look at it and say, I'll take it, um, and then you can arrange to have it picked up. It's just, it kind of goes on and on and on. It creates another life for this object. So when you're working with a client, Nicole, do you do they have homework when you're not standing with them? They well, I I hover a lot with my clients. I'm a professional hoverer, and uh, and so we work you know together one on one for the duration of the time that I'm there with them. The homework comes after I leave, and there's always something to do. There's oh, where do these weird keys go to like I should really find out if they belong to any part of my house um, I need to get this Tupperware back to somebody um, this book belongs to so-and-so uh, I need to follow up on you know this paperwork there's always something for people to follow up on and and it can get a little bit overwhelming because this is 
these are items that are getting unearthed, let's say. And that's why they did get shoved into a drawer or they're at the bottom of a pile or they're, you know, stuck in a box because we don't want to deal with it. So I kind of put the pressure on to say, okay, let's deal with this now or never. And if you don't want to deal with it, let's just throw it away. So for the clients you work with, Nicole, it's they've made the decision to get rid of the stuff. Now it's time to actually do it. You're not having to convince people that they need to get rid of stuff. Well, I guide them. In the them. sense that they are overwhelmed with it. Yes, yes. And so once they've reached that point of overwhelm, that's where I think the decision process becomes a bit easier. They've, they've already reached out. They've already made the phone call. Um, they realize they want to do this, but they don't either know how or they need uh, they need accountability. They need a cheerleader by their side. And that's that's when it just flows. And that's, that's when a lot of pro- uh, progress happens. And a lot can happen in just a few hours. It's pretty incredible. And then they everybody always feels lighter, more positive. Relief is a huge emotion that happens every single session. I have people in tears crying with happiness. You know, they're just like, thank you. This feels so great. And I love seeing that moment with clients, just that relief where like they didn't think that they could let go go of something because they felt obligated to keep it because it was a gift or it's they spent money on it or they've had it for a long time or you name it. And then that's when uh, that's when the magic happens. <laughs> I, I love seeing those tears of joy. Is that terrible? I don't know. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, Pat Hasberg, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered this show. Nate Wiggyhaupt produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you don't have to miss an episode of the local news when you listen to it as a podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.